0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: Throughout the season of Easter, the church intentionally abides in a garden full of hope and possibility, wondering what might grow up here. And, What good can be done now? With these important Easter questions in mind, we find ourselves in an Easter sermon series that is exploring the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts to try and better understand Jesus' good gospel. Through the lens of these various books, we hope to more fully appreciate Jesus' life into which he invites every person. Uh, three weeks ago, we considered the Gospel of Matthew's focus on an epic King Jesus in his revolutionary kingdom. Two weeks ago, we considered Mark's suffering servant, who reveals suffering and death as part of a larger, perhaps we can call it a universal, pattern. Life and then death, yes. But death, you see, is not the end. Rather, death is part of a process that gives way to new life. And then last week, we considered the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus is cast as the Son of God, the human one. The human one who encourages ongoing hope in the possibility that people, people as barren as fig trees may, with enough love and attention, begin to grow and to transform. This morning, we'll consider the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is unique when compared to the other three Gospels, often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have very similar material. And the arrangement of material is also similar among these three books. From Jesus' first appearance in public and progressing all the way through his passion, the synoptics place Jesus almost solely in Galilee, and his public activity follows a very similar sequence, including his final hours, crucifixion, and resurrection. However, the similarities in the synoptics extend beyond arrangement to include details of style and language as well. Large portions of these three books contain almost identical sections with just minor differences. And for this reason, most scholars believe that these three books were, in one way or another, dependent on each other for their material. But John, John is novel. John is different. John is unique. John has a different structure. John contains many different stories that we don't read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And overall, John has a different kind of message. Uh, Rather than Matthew's king and Mark's servant and Luke's son, John casts Jesus as, as the Logos, the Word of God made flesh, who is creating new life today, here, and now. And this, you see, is John's whole point. While Matthew may say that Jesus is the King of Kings, and while Mark may say that Jesus is the universal pattern for life, and while Luke may say that Jesus is the human one who reveals a way of being that is truly good, John is doing something utterly different. John, you see, is casting a whole new creation story. It's a story that's intentional to try and usurp all other creation stories. In the Bible, there are at least three other accounts of creation. Creation account number one, Genesis chapter one, the earth is formless and void. There's darkness and chaos, but the spirit we are told is hovering over the chaos, hovering over the darkness, longing to create life. And in a seven day poem, God creates that life. And so we need to, at this point, let go of whatever else we've been told about God. This is what the divine wants in the beginning to create life. And so in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, image bearers of the infinite, are created and given divine purpose. They are told to create. They are told to name. They are told to steward. You see, this is God's dream. The dream of the divine is for creation to flourish. And it all begins in a garden that is supposed to grow up and mature into a world that is teeming with life. Listen to Isaiah's visionary words for this world from chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him so that He might save us. This is with the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Such a hopeful poem. All people Feasting on rich food and well-aged wine, no shroud, no death, no tears, no disgrace, but instead gladness and rejoicing because, because the garden, the dream of the divine has grown up into a world that is teeming with life. But how? How will this happen? Well, Adam and Eve are placed into a garden and invited to, over time, grow up into the wisdom and knowledge and goodness of God. And as far as we know, they they did this. I mean, the text reads very quickly, the creation, Adam and Eve placed in the garden, uh, they sin. And yet we don't know how quickly they got to that point. Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, and season by season, perhaps for a very long time, Adam and Eve slowly grew up into the knowledge of God. Until the temptation for God's knowledge, all of it now, overcame Adam and Eve who eat from the tree they were told not to touch. Shame and guilt. Cursed, banished from the garden. You see, they were unwilling to grow the only way that humans can grow, slowly. And the garden did not develop into Isaiah's vision of a world that is teeming with life. Uh, creation account number two, Genesis chapter 6 to 8. The righteous Noah and his family come out of the ark and into a brand new creation. And the divine dream lived on. But then, Noah and one of his sons did some not-so-righteous things, and from that point on, everything just keeps getting worse, culminating in Genesis chapter 11, when the Tower of Babel falls and humanity scatters. You see, they were unable to be righteous enough. And the garden did not grow up into Isaiah's vision of a world that is teeming with life. Creation account number three, Genesis chapters 12 to 22. The Lord spoke to a man named Abram and said to him, Go where I tell you, trust in my word, and I will make you into a great nation that blesses the entire world. You see, this is our third creation story. And as the story goes, Abram departed for another land, which is to say that he trusted, he believed, he actually had faith in God's word. And Abram's children... Well, they're supposed to be children of faith. They're supposed to be God's new creation in the midst of a very old creation. But after a while, over time, they as well struggled with faith. They didn't seem capable of having enough of it. And so the prophets proclaimed, repent, return to faith. And the priests interceded, do these things and God will forgive you. And the kings ruled, follow me. And everything will be okay. But everything just got worse and worse. Israel split into two kingdoms. Both were defeated by foreign empires. And the end of the story is exile. Assyria takes over Israel. And Babylon takes over Judah. Short on faith. Whatever that is. And the garden does not grow up into Isaiah's vision of a world that is teeming with life. Isn't that interesting? I mean, obedience has its place in the world, but in the biblical account, it ends in guilt and shame instead of a flourishing creation. And righteousness, of course, this has its place in the world as well, but in the biblical account, it ends in drunkenness and chaos instead of a flourishing creation. And even faith. Faith has its place in the world as well, but in the biblical account, it ends in exile instead of a flourishing creation. And so, what are we to do? How are we to move toward the divine dream of a garden that grows up into a world in full bloom? Well, perhaps the answer is to try harder, right? I mean, religion often declares more obedience, more righteousness, more faith. But these are creation stories that have already been told. And you know what? It is never enough. It will never be enough. Never enough obedience, never enough righteousness, never enough faith. At some point after a while, we humans cannot do it that way. In fact, the more we try, the harder we work. At some point after a while, when we fail. We find ourselves feeling more guilt and shame. We find ourselves experiencing more drunkenness and and chaos. We find ourselves living in exile, believing that God is far, far away, perhaps even sickened by us and all of our failures. Maybe even seething with anger because of our inability to obey, to be righteous, and to have enough faith. And perhaps it's because of this that many of us give up. You know, like like we give up on God, or we give up on ourselves, or we give up on faith, or we give up on these religious stories that just don't produce good fruit. And all the while, God's Spirit hovers over the darkness and the chaos, teeming with life. All the while, God's dream of a garden growing up into a world in full bloom remains unhealed yielding. Uh, Developmental developmental theorists have said that it is pretty much impossible to solve a problem with the consciousness that created the problem. Uh, That is to say, if you see something in one way, and that very way of seeing the thing is the cause of the problem, then that way of seeing will not be able to solve the problem. It will only make that problem grow. It's a systemic issue related to the stories that we tell and the systems in which we participate. You see, what we need isn't an old story done better. What we need is a brand new revolutionary story. What we need is a new way of nurturing life in the world. What exactly would that look like? Well, in the Bible, it looks like this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 reads, In the beginning. Now, jump ahead to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, which reads, In the beginning. Sound familiar? It's supposed to. And yet, this beginning is the beginning of a very different kind of story being spun out into the world. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. And then, verse 14, this word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace. truth, We do not want to miss what John is doing here. John is intentionally casting a new creation story. It's a new creation story in the midst of all of the old creation stories. And it's undeniable that this is what John is doing. In John's gospel, there aren't seven days of creation, but there are seven miracles. Intentionally. Not 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 like the other Gospels, not 1 or 2 or 3 or 4, intentionally 7. In fact, John even gets us counting. Chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine and John writes, This is the first of his miraculous signs. In chapter 4, Jesus heals a sick child and John writes, This was the second miraculous sign. At this point, we're beginning to count without John's help. A disabled man is healed at a pool, that's three. A few loaves multiply and feed the masses, that's four. Walking on water, that's five. Healing a blind man, that's six. And finally, raising Lazarus from the dead, that's seven. After that, in John's gospel, there are no more miracles. And that's because it is the eighth day of a new creation. That's what the Gospel of John is telling us. And then at the end in chapter 20, after three days in a tomb, Jesus is resurrected and he's exactly, he is exactly where we need him to be. In a garden, of course. And it's this story that John is inviting us into to see with our eyes and to believe with our hearts. Can you see Jesus in a garden on the eighth day? It's the Word of God made flesh in a garden on the eighth day, after seven days of creation, after seven miracles. And as you finish reading the Gospel of John, you have this seed of audacious hope welling up in your heart, thinking, pondering, wondering, is this the garden? Is this the garden that grows up into a world in full bloom? For certainly this is a very different garden than those other gardens that declared, be obedient be righteous, keep faith, be more, do more, have more. You see, this garden is telling a very different kind of story. Think about it with me. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, 180 gallons of wine, just to be clear. But better than the wine are the jars in which all of this wine is stored. You see, those jars were ceremonial washing jars. Those jars declared, you are dirty, clean yourself up. But in this story, in John's story, these jars are filled with wine. And of course, you don't use wine to clean yourself up. You use wine to drink. You use wine to celebrate, to celebrate the fact that washing jars are no longer necessary. You drink wine to celebrate a new story in which humans aren't dirty, but wonderfully clean. Then in chapter 4, Jesus is sitting at a well, talking with a Samaritan woman. According to an older story, this woman does not belong to God, nor can she worship God. But Jesus tells her that she belongs. Jesus tells her that she can worship God from anywhere, at any time. You see, she is included. And then in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples pass by a blind man, and the disciples ask him, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, it's another old story that says God causes bad things to happen to bad people. I talked a little bit about this last week. But Jesus says to his disciples, wrong. That's not how the story goes. The bad in life isn't the result of some person's fault. The bad is just sometimes bad. And at its best, the bad can be an opportunity for something good. But to be clear, it's not your fault. And then in chapter 13, Jesus kneels and washes feet. And in chapters 14 to 19, he gives himself away. He gives his life away in passion for the entire world. It's beautiful, isn't it? Jesus declares, To the dirty, you are clean. To the excluded, you are included. To the suffering, it's not your fault. To the lowly, I will serve you. To the world and all of its brokenness, I am passionate for you. To the world and all of its brokenness, I break with you. You see, this is a very different kind of creation story. Intentionally so. Because, remember, it is impossible to solve a problem with the consciousness that created the problem. And so, when the old creation stories of be obedient, be righteous, keep faith, be more, do more, have more. When the old creation stories clearly no longer work. John's Jesus invites us into a revolutionary creation story in which, slowly, over time, like trees in a garden we begin to realize more and more and more that God is not saying obey or else, be righteous or else, have faith or else. No. According to John's good gospel, God is saying through the logos, the word made flesh, trust in my love, rest into my goodness, eat and drink of my life, live anew today. And as we do, rehearse this sacred story, and as we do, gather at this common table. We, we become one with Mary, who in a garden on the eighth day came to realize that the word made flesh wasn't above her or beyond her, but with her, with her in that garden. And so, overwhelmed, delighted, swept up into this new creation, Mary runs to the disciples and declares to them on Easter morning, which is truly every day, I have seen the Lord. Pearl Church, may we also see the Lord at work in this world and in our pulsing with possibility lives. And when we see that life bursting forth, and when we see that life fashioned here on earth, and when we see chaos of any kind cultivated and transformed into a bounding life, may we be among the first to declare, to see, new life, resurrected living, even new creation today. Let us pray. Creator God, fashion our chaos into life dispel our darkness with your light, and make all things, even us, new.
0: We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.